the National Archives podcast series, How to Mine the National Archives for Writing Fiction, presented by Dr. Catherine Mayer as part of our Writer of the Month series of talks. For anyone researching historical fiction, the collection at the National Archives is unparalleled in its diversity, range and quantity of sources. From building the minute detail of an everyday life in an earlier time in order to set the scene, to latching onto real-life narratives that are stranger than fiction, the records here offer a wealth of opportunity for any researcher willing to get their hands dirty with archival dust. Today I'm going to offer some general tips for those of you eager to make use of the documents, as well as offering some more specific advice about navigating the early modern collection, which is my specialist area. And I'll hopefully manage to take in some examples spanning from the early 16th century right through to the late 18th century. Possibly the main problem facing researchers of early modern sources is the unfamiliar handwriting and spelling. But although the documents may take patience and skill to decipher, great rewards await both the biographer and fiction writer, as the sources offer a far more personal take on early modern life than has often been appreciated. While some may shy away from legal documents, they do in fact offer a wealth of social and cultural detail as suitors plead their cases. Although many of the letters found in the state papers have been extensively used for political histories of the 16th and 17th centuries, there are plenty of other more private letters that offer evidence of a more personal take on how individuals were affected by political, cultural and religious changes. And although account books may not be a researcher's first port of call, they can in fact offer a portrait in miniature of a 16th century house offering details that can give an imagined interior a greater tint of authenticity than anything that can be imagined from scratch. The records here therefore have the potential to provide narrative structure, language contemporary to the time of the novel and a setting rooted in documentary reality. Today I'm going to outline some of the series that I think are the most useful for researching the early modern world and as well as giving you some examples from the documents I will try and provide tips for interpreting and accessing documents from these series. I aim to prove that anyone with an inquiring and analytical mind and a certain amount of persistence can make use of this wonderful material for their own effect. Before I begin discussing the documents in more detail, I need to confess that despite writing a PhD on letters of a 16th century woman, and spending many hours in the reading rooms at the National Archives, Lambeth Palace Library, the British Library, as well as various other county record offices. I'm also addicted to historical fiction, and the guilty secret that I keep from my colleagues is um, that my first degree was actually in English literature. So this might explain my sort of dual interest in both history writing and um, creating fiction from history. I'm, of course, not here to be um, a writer of the month, I'm more of a sort of portal to the wonderful world of archival research um, and I'm going to be a sort of cheerleader for any writer who wishes to explore the possibilities of our collection for their creativity. I can't do this talk without mentioning the high priestess of historical fiction, Hilary Mantel, and the critical and commercial success of both Wolf Hall and now of course Bring Up the Bodies. It is due to the total integration of her source material within the narrative structure of these novels that makes her work such a success, as well as her audacity to imagine and invent the points of erasure and silence, as she calls them, in the historical sources. 
In a conference held at the Institute for Historical Research on the relationship between history and historical fiction, Mantell discussed her method of writing, and I was particularly struck by this comment. I will make up the thoughts of a man's heart, but I will not make up the colour of his drawing room wallpaper. Rather than inventing wildly, Mantell instead seeks the fictional possibilities of fact. And as an example explained how an encounter with a petition of 1535 about the creation of a snowman dressed like the Pope gave her an idea for a scene in Bring Up the Bodies. And that although the image was transported in a diff to a different location and involving a different cast of imagined characters, it's grounding in reality as to the very similitude of the work. Mantell also asserted that she did not conduct primary research, but instead drew on the work of historians and carried out her own synthesis and comparison of the texts, and her discrimination between sources allowed her to create her own version of events. But if she can't or won't claim the status for histor as historian, fiction offers a different interpretive freedom that she embraces with relish. She argues that because she is not a historian, she can explore the power of rumour, the cauldron of sexual politics behind the fall of Anne Boleyn, and she can operate in the off-the-record area. She argues that traditional historical fiction is focused on iconography and gift-giving and the kind of historical research that focuses on things seen, um, but she is instead interested in the backstair gossip, um, the word behind the hand, and that which can't make it or won't make it onto the record. As Mantell says, if you read 20 different historians on Anne Boleyn, you'll read 20 different interpretations, often drawing on the same facts but giving different weight to certain factors over others. In this construction, historical fiction becomes yet another interpretive act, yet one that has infinite more freedom than so-called straight history, and one that Mantell believes should tell the past as it is, rather than using the past as a springboard for talking about the present. So where does this leave us? Well, I find it hard to believe that Mantell, when she says she does not carry out primary research, especially as she dedicates both Wolf Hall and Bring Up the Bodies to Mary Robertson, the chief curator of British history manuscripts at the Huntington Library in California. Even in her discussion of historical fiction at the Institute of Historical Research, her references range from pamphlets um, written in, in 1530s to obscure Elizabethan plays and private letters, and it demonstrates the wide range of sources she draws on for her work. Admittedly, to begin primary research in the early modern period is a daunting task. Um, the handwriting, the language, and even the physical condition of the documents obstructs easy reading, not to mention the problems of where to find the good stuff. But there are plenty of strategies that can help researchers to negotiate these difficulties, and the quest for answers in any research project can act as an excellent incentive to learn how to read 16th century handwriting. With so many record series here, sometimes the hardest thing is to work out where to begin your research. Without a doubt, the best place to start is with the keyword search of discovery. Um, and here I've used wallpaper as my example. You can do this for a person, place or subject. Um, and it instantly shows you the range of series within which your documents are likely to be found. Um, you need to remember that variant spellings will affect the returns of your results. So even if I separate wall and paper, you get a different number of results. You also need to be aware that contemporary terms can be problematic, as the language used in the document is not necessarily the same as the descriptive terms. And thirdly, not every document has a description online, or as we say, has been catalogued. 
and this means that you need to search published or manuscript volumes to continue with your search. And I'll describe how to do this for several important series a bit later on. Now, if your search finds relevant results, by all means, order them up and start the hard work of transcribing and reading the documents. But before you do so, it can be very useful and probably most of the time vital to understand a bit more about the context of the document and the series in which it can be found. So you can begin with the descriptions of the different series and the subseries um, that are included in, the, in Discovery and in the catalogue. And the next port of call would be one of our research guides. And these describe the background to individual series and show how they're interrelated, as well as outlining what you can see online or in print and how else to find useful documents. <coughs> as well as helping you understand what your actual document is, it can also help with the language and phraseology of the document. And the other way to give yourself a head start is to try and see if there are published editions of the series you're interested in. Even if this does not include the document that you're specifically researching, it will give you a frame of reference uh, for the documents. And as many of the legal documents are highly formulaic, this can help you to get to grips with the text. You are almost more than certain to come across other languages, especially Latin, um, although this does vary from series to series. And although most legal series are in Latin until 1733, there are plenty of documents in English that can still be explored. If your search doesn't unearth any results, uh, the next place would be to look at published sources on the person or subject in question. I find many people haven't even looked at the Oxford Dictionary of National Biography entry for a person that they're, they're researching, and that provides archival and published um, sources, um, and it's just a brilliant shortcut. Also, academic journals, they're a very good place to search. You can keyword search this. Uh, this is JSTOR. Um, and it's got a, a great sort of back catalogue of publications. Also, more basically, just browsing the library shelves in our library, which is a fantastic library, or in any other research library, and this is invaluable and will unearth many more, more sort of potentially useful resources than infinite searches of the library, ca library catalogues will. Volumes such as The History of the King's Works, uh, Victoria County Histories, are a first port of call when studying a place, and the Royal Historical Society Camden series consists of a huge range of editions of primary texts, from the diary of a 17th century Puritan to the accounts of the Earl of Leicester. And I've just discovered that a vast number of these volumes are available free online now. So that is some general guidance to searching the records. Um, and I'm now going to look more specifically at series that I think might be more useful for early modern research. The best place to begin, probably, is the State Papers a voluminous and eclectic series, and one that provides much of the core evidence for histories of the early modern period. It contains the correspondence and working papers of the Secretaries of State, the Chief Executive Officers of the Crown, between 1509, the first year of Henry VIII, and 1782, when the Home Office and Foreign Office were established. And they cover both the internal governance of the country and the conduct of foreign policy. Um, it's hard to describe the variety and detail that can be found in this series, especially over such a large stretch of time. Uh, but a few examples should give you some idea of the types of documents to be found in this series. This is the last letter written by Robert Dudley, the Earl of Leicester, to Elizabeth I, and it was found in a casket kept by her bed at her death, and it's poignantly inscribed in her own hand. This is a transcript of the child of Charles I, and here we see the dramatic moment when the king demands to be heard after his sentence, 
but is swiftly put down by the judge. No, sir, guard, withdraw your prisoner. And moving forward a century, here is an examination of Flora MacDonald and her role in the escape of Bonnie Prince Charlie. And you can see here that the line um, describes how he appeared in woman's clothes. Although the state papers encompass letters and documents from and about some of the most familiar figures from the past, there are also plenty of glimpses of more peripheral figures. The secretaries of state were responsible for intelligence gathering, and as a result, the state papers contain intercepted letters between those individuals you would not have expected to find appearing in papers of state. For example, letters from Jacobite soldiers to their loved ones, or this conversation, a recorded conversation between three ordinary women on the merits of a female sovereign. And the last one, you can see the last one saying, Jackman said, if a woman bear the sword, my lady Elizabeth ought to bear it first. Um, so this is debating between Elizabeth and Mary. The collection also includes some rather miscellaneous documents, such as this poster, which was found pinned to a church door in Keevil, Wiltshire, by, by, by a vicar, Richard Wainhouse, in 1745. And he then sent it to the Secretary of State, the Duke of Newcastle, as evidence of the rebellious potential within the village. Because, um, of course, this was at the point of the Jacobite Rebellion, Second Jacobite Rebellion. The letter accompanying the poster goes some way to contextualising it, as Wainhouse writes that he believes it to be the handiwork of two men in the village. And he describes them as turbulent and cruel men and as savage as the rebellious Highlanders. He recommends that they be imprisoned, as they would be the first men to head a mob of scribblers and weavers should the re rebels succeed. I'm not sure whether they'd get all the way down to Wiltshire, but anyway. Although the poster appears to be accusing Wainhouse of preaching pro-Catholic sermons, he hotly denies it and emphasises his loyalty to the state. And the letter and the poster together provide a snapshot of how relations play out between villagers, with Wainhouse referring to the nickname he had been given by these two men, which is Bully Dick, and there's even a little uh, caricature of, of him. The importance of the state papers has long been recognised, um, and in the 19th and 20th centuries, lavish amounts were spent on publishing summaries of the documents in chronological order, a form of listing documents that came to be known as calendaring. The calendars of state papers are indispensable to the early modern historian and make it far easier to gain access to the series. Here's just a sample of, uh, of the published calendars. And this is a sample, it summarises the examination of William Handy, who was a servant to Everett Digby, one of the gunpowder plotters. And then this is the folios uh, within the actual state papers volume, so you can see which one is easier to read. Um, and you can also see that the short calendar entry is summarising sort of four folios of handwriting. Uh, so you have to be aware that it is going to be a summary, but I have to say that they fairly, the calendarists fairly reliably uh, summarise the most pertinent points. These published volumes are indexed um, and are held by most research library and are a very good place to start if you want to get a feel for the sort of documents held in the state paper series. They were the best place to start your research for the state papers until fairly recently. Um, but the development of a digital resource, State Papers Online, has transformed how it's possible to access the documents. State Papers Online basically has digitised the original uh, printed calendars, um, which means that rather than trawling through each individual index to a volume, 
it's now possible to perform a keyword search across the entire series. Um, and I was having a bit of a play around with some random searches, and I decided to search for the word buttocks. Uh, and this actually brings up four results, including a rather brilliant letter from Francis Englefield, a courtier and Catholic exile. Written in 1570, the opening commendations include one to buttocks, my fat one, a thousand times. So I like to think this is a pet name for a person, not, not a piglet. The letter then contains further evidence uh, for various modes of letter writing practice in the period. For example, Englefield refers to the way that the last letter he received was written catacornerwise. So I think this is possibly anti-clockwise from the corner, um, possibly to make it more secure, or at least more difficult to read by anyone prying. As letter writing is the main mode of communication in this period, the processes with it are very much embedded in everyday life. As you can see here from his excuse for, for not writing in March due to kidney stones, I was in childbed when the post departed and shortly after I was delivered of a great stone. The resource then provides a link to a digital version of the relevant document. So you can see again how much longer it is. And actually, um, when you look at the full description of that document on State Papers Online, the letter has obviously been found very interesting by the calendarist as well because it's, it, it's practically the whole thing. Um, so this makes access far quicker and more convenient for the researcher as instead of ordering up the original document, um, they can fairly instantly see and print a copy of the original. And this also means the document's better preserved from overuse. Just to mention that this resource, State Papers Online, is free in our reading rooms here, um, but elsewhere it's subscription only, and I think the British Library have some parts, but there's not many universities that have it. And there are other points to remember about using both the calendars and State Papers Online. Uh, the editors of the calendars did not necessarily include a summary description of every single document found in the manuscript volumes, uh, so a person or a topic you're searching may be overlooked. Um, as 16th century and 17th century spelling is idiosyncratic, a further problem is that keyword searches can be rather hit and miss. Um, and actually, in some ways, the printed indexes can be more useful because you can browse and spot relevant variants. Also, one other thing is that not all the state papers are held here at the National Archives. Uh, some are at the British Library and other institutions. A rather more fundamental problem is that not every volume of the state papers has been calendared, which means the only way to access it is to browse the original manuscript. In fact, many of the 18th century state papers examples I have quoted above do not appear in published calendars, and there are no descriptions online although this is being rectified for the anniversaries of the 1715 and 1745 risings. But this is often where the most interesting and definitely understudied material can be found. So, for example, SP9, uh, known as the Williamson Collection, contains some 273 manuscript volumes, none of which appear on state papers online, and it's uncalendered for the most part. And this includes a whole volume of 17th century poems, including a mask by Ben Jonson. There are also volumes of ciphers, pamphlets collected by the government, other letters of intelligence, such as those from Baron von Stosch, a Prussian antiquarian who spied on the Jacobite court at Rome for the British government. So how do you spot the lesser catalogued series? It's at this point you need to start thinking more like an archivist and begin to work out how the series are arranged. Once you've read all the research guides on the state papers, you can then begin exploring the structure of our series via our online catalogue. Or, 
perhaps slightly more easily through the actual the, the volume of the general guide, as we call it, upstairs in the reading rooms. And although not all documents have descriptions online, there is um, a series of books called Supplementary Finding Aids, which we hold upstairs in the Map and Large Document Reading Room. Um, and this, these are a mixture of contemporary indexes and also indexes created at a later stage by archivists. And they offer some of the only ways into these less catalogued series. So I'd urge you to visit the Map and Large Document Reading Room once you have a reader's ticket and just to browse the shelves to see the kind of range of finding aids we have. I'm now going to turn to some of the legal records we hold here, which are proportionately the most under-catalogued and therefore most difficult to find. The common law records of the Court of King's Bench and the Court of Common Pleas are only accessed by the contemporary finding aids and are written in highly abbreviated legal Latin. So although one of our research guides notes that no biographical study can be considered complete without a thorough search of the common law records, I hope you'll forgive me if I use the rest of my time here today to focus on the records of the Equity Court, the Court of Chancery, as these records are written in English in a much easier to read hand. Now you'll probably all be familiar with the Court of Chancery from the Jandis for Jandis case in Charles Dickens's Bleak House. Um, and while Dickens used that novel as a platform to criticise the bloated and incompetent state of the court, it had begun its life as a court that offered a speedy and cheaper way for people to obtain justice. Since the late 14th century, hundreds of thousands of disputes over inheritance and wills, lands, trusts, debts, marriage settlements, apprenticeships and other parts of the fabric of daily life were heard by the Lord Chancellor or his deputies of the Court of Chancery. Um, people turned to Chancery because it was an equity court, promising a merciful justice not bound by strict rules of common law courts, um, and the procedure was quite different and involved the gathering of written pleadings and evidence. Most of its records are in English, um, and many appear somewhat misleadingly to be in written speech. And these still exist in such quantity today that the equity records of the Court of Chancery are one of the treasures of the National Archives and a major resource for social and economic history. Now, as an example, I'll show you a recent case I researched where a woman sued her husband for desertion. And it proves to be a particularly evocative example of early modern mar marital disharmony. As I've mentioned above, we need to be aware that although the language in Chancery proceedings appears similar to spoken word, it is in fact written by a clerk who would have rendered the account of the plaintiff into the language and structure of a legal document. The existence of repeated stock phrases and stereotypes obviously makes these bills, these bills of complaint tricky to interpret, and the mediation of the plaintiff's experience through the scribal and loyally hands can discourage readers from using such texts. But I don't believe these documents should be ignored just because they are created within a formulaic legal framework. The clerk was creating a narrative, drawing on traditional tropes and persuasive language in order to persuade the masters of chancery to favour their clients. And there is just too much detail in these cases for us to jettison the whole series. A comparison of similar cases also gives us a quicker eye for the differences in the stories across the different cases and the possible gaps and omissions that allow us to read between the lines of legal phraseology. So, in Brown v Brown, dated between 1556 and 1558, Anne Brown begins in her Bill of Complaint 
the first stage of a case in Chancery by accusing her husband Charles of having unkind, devilish inclinations and dispositions, not regarding, nor having before his eyes the fear of God, so that she could not live a quiet life. And that then, without reasonable cause, has shamefully and unlawfully diverted and put away your poor supplicant, being a young woman, and quick with child from his company and fellowship, and seeking daily and haunting wicked and ungodly company continually. She then states that she's brought the case to Chancery in order to, to seek the restoration of her money and goods that she brought to the marriage. One of the great advantages of Chancery is that the pleadings often include the response from the defendant, um, and then sometimes even another response from the plaintiff. So you get both sides of the story. Charles Brown's response takes advantage of one of the gaps in Anne's pleading, uh, namely how she went with very little explanation from not being able to live a quiet life to being put away by her husband. And he draws on that familiar female characteristic of scolding. The said defendant hath been sick this summer last past by the space of nine or ten weeks, during which sickness the said complainant of her devilish mind, not fearing of God or the shame of the world, did continually and daily vex and trouble the said defendant with continual scolding and chiding to the great unquiet of the said defendant. <laughs> so Charles's reference to sickness is quite significant because he's putting himself in a position of vulnerability without exposing his masculinity. Um, and he uses his sickness to accentuate Anne's failure as a, as a wife, um, as she did not only refuse to help the said defendant in his sickness and to dress him meats of broths, when, as he gently required her, but also wished the said defendant poisoned, and the said defendant, perceiving her unreasonableness and evil-disposed mind to him without any cause given to her of his part, and fearing lest she should practice some bodily harm to the said defendants by poisoning or otherwise, did send away the said complainant out of his house to her father in decent manner as lawful was for him to do. So Anne's unwifely behaviour moves speedily from not bringing him chicken broth to attempted murder. Um, and as one historian notes, the device of poisoning is just too, is too commonly used in ballads and pamphlets to be a true reflection of, of early modern married life. And the quick elision from sort of lack of care to outright harm is, is, I think, where we can see the gap in Charles's defence and suggests that the accusation of poisoning is used here, as elsewhere, as a signifier for a bad wife. Perhaps another suggestion that, like the ballad writers, the clerks were framing the document for the audience is also worth considering. And they try and pick up the words that the, the masters of chancery would, would understand or recognise. And another point Hilary Mantel makes in relation to writing historical fiction is that the author should foreground the instability of the evidence, working it into the narrative rather than ignoring it. Um, and I think this is perhaps a technique that would work particularly well with the chance resources as you get these sort of many layered voices and audiences. Chancery is full of similarly detailed cases written on unwieldy parchment sheets and would supply many lifetimes a worth of stories for the aspiring writer. Um, it's not the easiest series to search through, and although those suits from the 15th and 16th centuries are well catalogued, after 1558, the various series of initial pleadings are not catalogued in as much detail. Uh, several series have no searchable list online. Later stages of suits require the use of the contemporary indexes that I mentioned above. 
and subject or place searching can be impossible as most are listed by the name of the suit. So this is a boon if you're searching for a specific name and that name isn't Brown or Smith. Um, but they're still worth having a look at. The final area I'm quickly going to focus on is how sources can be used for building a material picture of the world that the story inhabits. Uh, the records of the Lord Chamberlain, for example, contain documents relating to the royal household and are a relatively easy series to access and provide a wealth of imagery. For example, these are payments uh, for a robe for Elizabeth's coronation. And you, Walter's fish, I'll just read you it out, is, is paid for making a robe of purple velvet containing one kirtle with a train furred with powdered ermine edged about the skirts, and so on. Other documents demonstrate the range of staff employed by the royal household. Uh, this is a warrant for a livery for a Mrs Elizabeth Stubbs, uh, who is apparently rat killer in ordinary to his majesty. Uh, I don't know who the rat killer in extraordinary would be, but anyway, when you need them. Um, and you also get in the Lord Steward's department uh, records to do with the diet and, and food, which I find particularly evocative. Uh, here you've got John Barker's um, craving an allowance for 12 compots served to his majesty's household from orange and lemon chips for sweetmeats, apricots and peaches, burnt almonds and pistachio nuts. Uh, and that's dated to 1797. And these details of the physical environment and clues to how people lived can be found all the way down the social scale, uh, most notably in the collection of um, probate inventories. Up until 1782, every executor or administrator of a will was required to send the registry of the court an inventory of a deceased's goods. And these, those inventories that survive, and there's a fair amount, are listed by person and place in the online catalogue. And as a quick final example, this document here is the inventory of 1718 for the goods of one Thomas Haggart, a grocer from Essex. The inventory is taken room by room, so it's divided up into in the hall, in the parlour, in the best chamber, and then it describes the, the goods found in those areas. So it gives you a real sense of kind of walking through the houses of people. I realise this has been a bit of a rattle through some of our sources um, and is far from exhaustive, but I hope it's provided you with at least an overview of how the National Archives can help historical fiction writers. There are so many key series of documents that I have not even touched on, such as the wills, um, maps or taxation records, that can yield significant information about people, place and subjects. But I'm sure there's as many topics in this room as people, and so it'll have to be over to you all to start sleuthing um, to unearth that perfect document for your own designs. Thank you. <laughs> This talk was recorded on the 15th of January 2013 at the National Archives, Kew. Was sponsored by the Friends of the National Archives. This podcast is copyright to the National Archives. All rights reserved.